0: The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Tara Dillard is a nationally recognized garden designer, author, and speaker. She has hosted her own CBS television program, The Better Gardening Show. After earning degrees in engineering and horticulture, she began designing and installing low-maintenance organic landscapes. Her design emphasizes the balance between home, garden, and life. As an award-winning author of five books, including Garden Paths and Stepping Stones, Beautiful by Design, and The Garden View. Tara writes a newspaper column, magazine articles, and maintains a popular blog on her website, Terradiller.com. Based in Atlanta, Georgia, she lectures nationally, spreading the message that creating a beautiful landscape will create a beautiful life. This is episode 108, A Garden View, with Tara Dillard on the Garden Question Podcast. This is a remix and encore presentation of episode four. Tara, what is a garden view?
1: Well, a garden view, I named it, my company, decades ago before the internet even, before cell phones. I liked the name of the movie, A Room with a View, which is one of E.M. Forster's books. And I had yet to spend decades studying historic landscapes across Europe at that point. In fact, I didn't even have a degree in horticulture yet. I had a degree in engineering, but I named my business up front, a garden view. What's happened over time is it was fate. That was the name because after the degree in horticulture in America, I did not learn what I needed to learn about garden design. I felt like I still could not design a decent landscape. So I started going to Europe with a, an expert guide and upfront thing, the most important thing I could learn about garden design is it starts inside your home. All the good gardens, all the historic gardens for centuries, over a thousand years, thousands of years, they start inside your home, looking out the windows, a garden view I couldn't believe that I had already named it properly. If you're going to put focal points out or if you're going to have a pond or just something that you want to see or something you don't want to see. If your garden view is the site of your neighbor's house in an air conditioning unit, well, yeah, we want to live in neighborhoods and have air conditioners. However, you don't want to see it. You'll put in an evergreen small hedge or a bush, and then there you go. You've started your garden design. It is that simple of a starting point.
0: I remember you talking about vanishing thresholds. What is that concept?
1: Well, the vanishing threshold, that's another thing I learned in Europe, is you come upon a property, it doesn't matter the size, from immense, which could be immense that it had great wealth when it was formed centuries ago, and then it's fallen on, it's it's member of the trust properties now because there's no money to keep it up the vanishing threshold is when you come up there is a lovely garden but you get a strong sense with the house that you know what the house is like inside what I like to say now is when I'm at the curb I need to know who you are from the curb your garden design starts from inside your house your house is the backdrop to your landscape design your house is a focal point in the garden so all four sides are important So the vanishing threshold is also your life in your house, spreading out into your garden. I was reading a magazine article. Oh gosh, this is probably over 20 years ago now. It was about a textile designer, a very successful lady. I was looking forward to reading that article. I didn't have time, so I'd saved it for later. And I'm glad I did to pay great attention to it. It was beautiful photography. She said that how she sets her morning table even and the robe she wears, she wears a solid white bathrobe in the mornings to drink her coffee and a solid white cup. And she said, i like to stand here in my home. The photographer got a shot of it. She's in her breakfast table area off her kitchen and looking across the family room. And then there's another room and there's a large window looking out into the garden. She's standing there, totally a vanishing threshold herself with every room in her house flowing into the garden. So she wasn't just in her house. She was already flowing into the garden and she called it organic. That was the first time I had seen the word organic used that she liked having her coffee, her robe, how she decorated her house and how she designed her garden thought, well, that's really unusual. I thought organic meant the lack of poisons. You know, why is this woman who's a textile designer saying organic about getting up in the morning, drinking her coffee and her views? I looked up the word organic truly is more properly used the way she used it. It is an organic system that comes together because of usage. And I grew up starting in the 60s. That was the end of World War II. The great suburbia is being formed. My dad, once a week, he would put the chemicals out because we lived in a tropical zone. And so I grew up with that. It was not organic. I thought organic meant you don't use chemicals. That was nice to learn that about Vanishing Threshold is your personal organic way of living. By the way, if you do garden the historic way, there's truly no need ever for chemicals. Vanishing Threshold covers all of that from how you want to live your life organically to inside your house and your garden. Did I confuse you or answer you?
0: What I took from that is you're one with the garden, even though you're inside. Would that be the same?
1: Yes. You could say it in reverse.
0: You're one with the garden or the garden's one with you.
1: Yeah. And if you take the philosophical implications from that, it is you have choices. I just love that you have choices. It's not like we all live in a subdivision with a homeowners association dictating everything. If you broaden your horizon to centuries worth of garden design, you can apply that to do have restrictions because of a homeowner's association. You can be more organic with your garden. You can be more at one with your garden and not need chemicals.
0: How do organic and formal gardens work together?
1: I like it when you use that word formal. I would say the word formal coming from clients is used as a negative. People will say, oh, I want this, this, and this for my garden. Okay, okay. Then they'll say, but I don't want anything formal. I always ask for pictures. You know, it used to be, I'd say, tear out some pictures or circle pictures of magazines that you like. But of course, now we can do boards and and I can see it online before we ever meet. With the pictures, oh, I don't want anything formal. But then I would say over 90% of the time, the clients who say, I don't want anything formal, every picture is formal. I used to say, but all your pictures are formal. It's kind of like I became a bad guy for saying that. So I don't say that anymore. I do what's in their pictures. I completely leave the fact that they said they don't want anything formal. I leave that alone. I don't reeducate them on the terminology and what it means. I just give them what they ask for in pictures. And they're very happy, even though it's very formal. Ironically about formal, it has centuries of use. It's going to be one of the easiest to maintain gardens that you'll ever have is the formality if you have the expanse of low meadow which could be lawn and hedges which could be a tapestry hedge that grows to the height you want there's not a whole lot of pruning involved it is attractive to pollinators and then maybe you have some canopy trees in there maybe a few blooming hydrangeas and you're done you've got this beautiful garden there it is and it's all on focal point axis from inside the house vanishing threshold to outside that monster in the room or the pink elephant in the room, that word formal. So, yeah, I find that word amusing.
0: You said that you find it to be a low-maintenance landscape. In Mm -hmm. my mind, I always thought formal because you've got a lot of straight lines in it that you are having to do a lot of pruning, which if you have to do a lot of pruning, to me, that's a lot of maintenance. Am I missing something on that?
1: It is the choice of plants. If you want a hedge that's going to grow to six feet, choose the plant in the hedge. That'll grow to about six feet and you're not having to prune it several times a year. I mean, there are literally foundation plants for decades. This is in America. I'm speaking strongly of America right now that you'll have Agnes or you'll have hollies that want to be taller than your two story house. And they've been planted in the 50s. In the 60s, is foundation plants, the irony there is the plants are still there and growing and they've been whacked back two times a year. Or maybe somebody gets elderly in the house, they get sick, they're living in the house, they're aging in place, and those bushes start growing into the house. They're a danger, they're a hazard, they have to be chopped down, but then they don't rip out the root ball and it regrows. That's where you could say the formality of a hedge is high maintenance, and that's because of an incorrect plant choice up front. For instance, I moved into a historic home five years ago, and there's a a lovely hedge of boxwoods. I think they're about as old as the house, about 121 years old. I've never pruned them. I doubt I'll ever have to prune them living in this house because they've maxed out at four and a half feet. They're done.
0: Tell us more about your garden there at your house.
1: It's interesting. I used to have a cottage garden that I built up over 30 years myself, very tiny, but it lived big. I mean, a lot of people would come visit after they saw it on TV or in a magazine and they would say, oh, my gosh, I thought you had acreage. Well, you know, including the house, the lot is under 8,500 square feet, which is not even a quarter acre. I moved into my belief system. It's just amazing to move away from a 30-year garden, something you obviously love and treasure so deeply. But I was the right age. And I figured if I don't make the move, then I'll never make the move. Stasis would enter because it was a beautiful garden and the house is beautiful after live there and do what you want to it. Found this house on Zillow. It was built in 1900. There's not a lot here. It's five acres. I don't want to garden the whole thing. My intent is to garden it for my 80-year-old self. I don't want to have to worry about skilled workers doing anything in the yard for me. If I have any help in the yard, I want it to be unskilled labor at most four times a year, preferably two times a year. I've got six or seven pecan trees, which are natives that are over a hundred years old. And I've got a couple of garden sheds that have been renovated out there. One of the favorite things I have is terra turf. I finally have my own terra turf, which is a low meadow, I don't have any other name for it. 30 years ago, starting off in Europe, they didn't have lawns at all like we do in America with Bermuda, fescue, or zoysia, or Kentucky bluegrass. They had a mix of clovers and herbs and just whatever the wind blew in or the birds dropped. It was lovely. that There were things blooming you could smell the soil. There was no need for chemicals. They mowed it at two to three heights. You might have a height that was up to your knee. Next to that could be a height that was up to your mid calf. And then by the pathway that were mowed, that grass could be two and a half inches. Well, it's not grass. It could be grass, and you know, here in America, I have sorrel, I have clover, I have Poa annua. It's the annual bluegrass. What I have with this mix of what is traditionally called weeds, that's what's been growing in American rural farmland properties since before America was formed. When you have a pollinator habitat like that, let's say you have crops nearby. Well, those crops, even though they're not mine, those crops with the pollinators my terra turf will provide can actually produce 80% more off the same amount of acreage than if the increased pollinators were not there from the tarot turf. They're just such little things you can do to improve the insects. I'm sure you've heard the good example. For those of us who are old enough to remember being kids in the 60s, you drove anywhere, you would have dead insects all over your windshield pull up to the gas station and the man would come out and he knew your mom by name, asked how your dad was who wasn't there. Oh, but your dad called and said to check this for you under the hood. He would clean the insects off the windshield. That was for years. I could drive two hours and not hit a insect now. That's pretty sad. Just getting your soil back, that you're not using chemicals, getting the mix of the herbs out there, the sorrel, the different types of clover. I've got little iris out there, little bulbs here and there, and I got birds, all kinds of birds.
0: If I wanted to establish territory in my yard, how would I go about doing that?
1: The person that's going to establish TerraTurf, if you have a thick zoysia lawn or a thick Bermuda or a centipede and want to go this direction, it's going to be tough, especially the warm season grasses. And if you have plenty of sunshine, they're very aggressive and they're going to choke a lot of other things out. They're going to look weedy. I did have, a, this is a good example. I, I had some clients that they traveled the globe. They lived the globe for work. We were settling down and I got hired for them. He was still traveling a lot, but she quit traveling with him and was establishing their garden. She wanted the terra turf on their 300-acre historic farm. At the house, he was still wedded to the subdivision landscapes he grew up with, even though he's been exposed to the best of everything globally in landscaping. He wanted zoysia. Everything was terra turf except the backyard, this area that we put zoysia in for him. I think it was six years later, maybe, I get a phone call from her, one of those thrilling moments. She told me that he came to her and said, you know, this really doesn't look right here. The garden is so pretty, but this zoysia, it's a lot of trouble and it's dormant in the wintertime. It's all brown. It just doesn't have all the birds and butterflies that the rest of the property has. Why don't we just let it go and let it be terra turf too? took a few years. We didn't care take the zoysia anymore. We let all the other invasives and weeds that were everywhere else and so pretty come in. Of course, they have woods and everything, not the whole 300 acres. Now it's all terra turf.
0: Did you do anything to get rid of the zoysia or you just let it go?
1: No, because we didn't want to use chemicals. We just totally let it go. Of course, as social world has it, they had a party for everybody that was involved with helping with their property and making it, it's historic. And they brought it back to life and made a few changes, but they wanted to take it back with integrity to the founders over a hundred years ago. So I go to the social event, it was casual and there was wine and canapes, can walk and talk inside and out and mingle and everything. Whenever I do garden design and I get invited socially, I love to watch how men and women use the space. I like to watch how the different age groups use the space, learn about how to be a better garden designer from all of that. And I've been really fascinated from those in college or those in their 20s or those in their 30s. This social event I had been invited to because I was part of the project. I was talking to an older gentleman. You could tell he'd been a farmer his whole life. He's retired and just this really wonderful man. I was telling him how we had come in with the terra turf and let it take over from what was here so it didn't have to have all the chemicals and everything. When I had the exit interview, when the homeowner called me, you know, what did you think? Who'd you meet? What kind of conversations did you have? Because we're all about the garden. We really do talk. This is our life. This is really what we do about it. I saw that you were talking to Mr. So-and-so and I said, now, who is that? She described him. I said, oh, I had a great conversation with him. I told him all about how the TerraTurf is now taken over and we don't have to use chemicals anymore. And she goes, really? How did that conversation go? And I said, oh, it went really well. This is testament to what a kind man this is. He was the man that for decades applied the chemicals to this property. (laughs) He was one of the hired people across the decades that the previous owners had. He put up with this whippersnapper. (laughs) even though I was in my 50s. <laughs> I haven't spoken to him since. He was kind to me. He didn't seem better. I wish I had known who he was so we could have talked about that. I do know this about TerraTurf, mowing it at three different heights, especially living out here now. When you learn across Europe versus you live in America, I live in middle rural Georgia. It is hot here. I live where the Piedmont meets the coastal plain we are hot very long, is all to say we have timber rattlers here. Those things are all muscle. They're very large. They can do what they want, when they want, where they want, and how fast they want. You don't want to go out and kill them or anything. But with the taller grass, you need to be careful where it's at. It needs to be far enough away from your house. And if you're going to have the lower turf where you walk on a pathway, and then the next layer is probably four to five inches tall, that's fine. I'm probably not near my house going to have the taller at knee height just because of the timber rattlers and I don't want to be walking near that. Also, another thing to add in the old properties, mine is one of those. I wanted to make it as historic as I can and simple for my 85-year-old self. And so where I have gravel and the drive and the parking court in front and in the back gravel terrace, I have it going all the way up to the house because it's historic talking to a friend of mine who's a little bit older, and I love it, very knowledgeable. You know this friend. It's a mutual friend, and I hope you interview her show soon. It's Suzanne Hudson.
0: Yeah, we're working on that. Talking to her there yesterday.
1: Good, good. By putting the gravel historically all the way up to my house, and if I want any plantings, of course, I'll get some cobblestones and, better yet, found stones on the property and make a square and plant something if I want it. The gravel all the way up to the house is also a protector against snakes I might run into out in the garden. So I'm not having terra turf tall next to the house or near my pathways or anything like that. I'm very careful about it for safety.
0: So the gravel, that's an environment that the snake would feel vulnerable, I guess, and they don't like to hang out there. That would be the same thing with the shorter grasses or shorter vegetation.
1: Correct. You've got to be careful of those things. But when you're living in England and you see they're beautiful, multi-layered and some tall of this meadow, depending on where you live, there are a lot of places in America that you're just not going to have that for safety.
0: What are some of your earliest garden memories?
1: I have the fondest memories at my parents' home. I, I lived on Galveston Bay on saltwater. There was also marshes and all that kind of stuff. It was just stunning and beautiful and a great era to grow up where I did. There was a field beside my parents' home. It hadn't been built yet. The whole neighborhood had just started. It had been a rich man's hunting preserve on salt water. Nothing was really there when I was a child in the 60s. And the field next to us had white clover. I was expert at finding ones with four leaves. And then I was expert. I laughed. Um, it's too ridiculous. I was expert of choosing the white clovers that had the most beautiful blooms in all of that acreage. I would pick a bouquet of that white clover as thick and beautiful, as many four-leaf clovers and the beautiful blossoms as my little greedy hand could hold, and I would take them into my mother for a vase. <laughs> so that that's my my first, I I just love that. My grandmother lived in Georgia. Grandmother loved to garden and there was no garden center. She was in Milledgeville, Georgia, which was the capital of Georgia during the Civil War, just a southern traditional tiny, tiny town. Grandma had gladiolas. She would order things out of these little catalogs. She had gladiola. She had chrysanthemums. Oh, she had pansies. She had this little garden in her backyard. It was Georgia red clay. And there was probably eight or 10 little pathways in there with the Georgia granite or some of the quartzy rocks that, that Georgia has both in abundance. She would put in these pansies in Christmas time that I would be there, the Easter time. She just have all these plants. I can remember walking and playing in her garden and talking to the plants, especially the chrysanthemums. I can remember being young enough and the chrysanthemums would be head height on me. She would grow these giant ones because she would enter competitions in flower shows and stuff like that. I was having relationships with plants and flowers from the age of three. In hindsight, my grandmother loved me more than I knew because I would cut all I wanted and play with them and make bouquets and do vases and everything. As a small child, my grandmother never once said anything to me because I think in hindsight, I must have cut every red gladiola she ordered every last one. Instead, she took pictures of me and said, I love you and you're beautiful and the bouquet is beautiful. That's what my grandma did for me.
0: Now, you've got a degree in engineering. What took you from engineering to horticulture?
1: I liked horticulture. I graduated with my engineering degree when Jimmy Carter was president and 21% interest rates, and I flat out could not find a job. I got my degree in Texas, where I'm from, but I married and came to Georgia. It was just hard to get work. I ended up working in a bank and passed a pike nursery. They had over 20 locations. And one was hiring. I hope back in the day, everybody had a family-run nursery because very few of them remain. But in the 80s, I stopped at the Help Wanted sign and I got hired, full-time hired. The next morning, I gave my two-week notice of bank. I loved it more every day that I was there. I just loved working at the nursery. It was hard work. Um, you're on your feet all day. And if you're in charge of ordering houseplants and cut flowers and all of that, it would come in on 18-wheeler huge sections of that were yours. Everything I ordered, I got to unload off the truck. Okay, fine. You're exhausted. But then the next day you get to undo the boxes, the front display room with all the flowering house plants. Oh my goodness. I still look back on that. There's nothing to compare to it today that I've seen in over 20 years. I might've had 20 cases of hyacinths, 15 cases of center area, and they were all mine to undo and display. And then I decided I want to take some courses at the local college about plants to learn more. I decided I'm going to go get another degree. It was in horticulture and that's when I wanted to know more about garden design, residential gardens. I finished it. I'm still friends with a lot of the people I was in my classes with. I realized I still didn't know what I wanted to know about these beautiful gardens that you would see in Horticulture Magazine or House and Garden Magazine. The ones that were out in the 80s, not now. There's nothing comparable to back then. So that's when I started taking trips with educated, degreed guide about historic gardens across Europe.
0: How have you evolved as a designer?
1: As a designer, I've gotten a lot simpler a lot simpler. As a designer, I won't even do the type of subdivision landscapes that I would do the first 20 years because of the deeded homeowner association type landscape. I I don't even want to do that anymore. I don't do that anymore because I want to do historic landscapes that have thousands of years of templates underneath them. They are organic to your life of you living in your home. They are nurturing. I'd even go so far as to say they're biblical because there's something all year there that's beneficial to you, beneficial to wildlife, and beneficial to the soil, beneficial to our groundwater, the flora and fauna that are natural and native to different areas. I like working with nature, what I learned about the historic landscapes in Europe. And so those are the gardens. And ironically, when... I was hired for the first farm property well into my career with acreage. I did not realize that the properties in Europe that I was learning from, because I was taking that learning and applying it to the subdivision landscapes that I was doing for decades in Atlanta.
0: We've talked about these concepts on large properties with the acreage. How do you bring that to the, the subdivision lot or a townhouse, scale?
1: That's a very good question. And the answer is landscape design rules for several hundred acres do not change for landscape design rules at less than a quarter acre or a townhome. They just don't change. What you do on the smaller scale is steal the view. At my small property before I moved here, my 30-year cottage garden, I had no space for a large tree, and it was a bare lot when I built my home on it, nor did I have time to grow a 100-year-old tree, much less a 60-year-old tree. There were some around me. I used the view of those canopy trees, and then I put in understory trees with them. Another thing I did is every garden needs a color trinity. You need to choose an exterior color trinity. You can choose anything you want. There is a best color trinity that has worked across all continents and all eras since before Christ was born, so well over 2,000 years. Green, brown, and white is the best landscape design color trinity you can choose. Might sound boring to you or you want to be unique. Well, you can be because what shade of green, what shade of brown, what shade of white, what subsidiary colors are you going to use? What are you going to put on your house to match with that? How does that flow with the interior of your house? When you start talking green, there are so many shades of green. In addition to the different colors of green for bushes and trees, you've got some greens are hairy. Foliage is not smooth. It's very, very hairy and fuzzy. Then you can have a waxy leafed green that is very shiny and smooth like an ice skating rink. Every garden design rule for several hundred acres holds true. At under a quarter acre, and as proof of this, my cottage garden, which was under eighty five hundred square feet, I did photograph it a lot. So I'm there every day, so, so that is kind of cheating when you can shoot something so much. I had written an article for a magazine. Oh, gosh, this was years years ago, and it was an herb garden article. And I shot two or three pics from my garden, put them in the article. It ran in the magazine. And about a year later, I get a call from a lady. She read the article. She had torn it out and she liked the pictures. She liked the writing. She she said, I like your approach to gardening. And she said, but I really like your pictures. And I go, oh, okay. She said, I live on several hundred acres. I'm just quiet listening to her because the picture I took, I was in my bathroom and my master bath back in the 80s. There's a toilet room. It has the door and there's a window and it's just the toilet in this little room. In the window, you looked out, and my side yard had a hedge and a pond and a flagstone terrace and plantings, and it was green, brown, and white. It it looked like it had been there for ages, as in centuries. It was just stunning. It was beautiful. If the hedge were gone off that tiny little garden, off that tiny little window, I counted it, 11 homes on my cul-de-sac if that hedge were not there. That hedge was there because it was not legal for me by deed restriction or homeowner association to have a fence in my front or side yards. So I had a hedge. I can remember this very well. I needed 49 plants. I can only afford one gallons. And this was, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about Pikes again, that nursery that had so many locations, the family nursery. They would have plant of the week every week. It was all kinds of things. I mean, it was just all over the map. What kind of plant it would be. Well, I needed an evergreen that would grow about eight feet. I didn't care what it was. It just needed to be evergreen, hardy, eight feet. I didn't want anything 20 feet because so I didn't want the labor of it. Finally, after a few weeks, they had Cleara on sale. Plant of the week was always $1.99 for a really nice, you know, back in the day, the one gallon plants are kind of like three gallon plants. Now that gosh, they're, they're like $14. That was my hedge. I took good care of it. So it grew fast. This client on acreage, she wanted to create something like I had because she said everything is just so open. I don't have anything like that. And she had no idea that I lived this little tiny subdivision in a teeny lot. I couldn't even shoot from my garden to get that picture. I had to go in the little toilet room and open the window to get that picture because the garden was that small. All the garden design rules apply Oh, back to the small garden living as big as acreage. It's the sky. I I have literally sat there and contemplated in my garden. Why does it feel so big here? What's going on? Why does it feel so big? So yeah, I have my hedges, my understory trees, the neighbor's canopy trees. And you know I have some perennials and flowering shrubs and ground covers and flagstone pathways and a potager um, herb garden. My analysis finally of trying to discover why my tiny garden lives so big, it's because I still had the sky. The whole sky was mine. And that's a heads up for all of you with a tiny garden. The whole sky is yours. So not only do the landscape design rules for acreage still apply to you, your acreage is the sky.
0: You say design rules, you're talking about scale, texture, massing, the design elements?
1: Technically, yes. But for me, being a specialist... In our profession, I know we've talked about that before. That's why I love when we do the Penny McHenry Hydrangea Festival together. I really missed it during the pandemic.
0: Yeah, me too.
1: I really miss people who don't know you coming up to you. Because we sit there for, what is it, two or three days talking to people who are looking at our garden displays we've made. Get people who know a lot and know you. Maybe they've got a garden you've already put in for them. And I like hearing that conversation. Or people who don't know anything. They've never gardened in their life. They just bought their first home. And I I love hearing you talk to them. You always want to talk to somebody where they're at so they get it. Then I get to talk to people about the garden I've put in. So as a professional with garden design, the first thing I'll say is, as a rule, is the landscape begins inside your house. I, I want you considering the views at your window before you consider scale, texture, form. That would come after knowing where to put the plantings that are then going to handle the scale, texture, and form. Choose a color trinity for your garden. I have put together a garden design equation because I had to use my engineering (laughs) degree in the horticulture field. You laugh, but it's totally true. And then to top it off, after I came up with my garden design equation, I think a decade later, I realized I'm a slow learner here. I realized that my garden design equation, this is how you should design a garden. You design a garden in a certain template. It's also the same template when you're installing your garden. If you want to design your own garden, the first thing you want to design in are trees. You want canopy and understory trees. Those are self-explanatory. Your canopy trees might be your neighbor's trees. That's okay. Steal the view. If you have understory trees, don't cheat. Get a tree that it's going to grow to the size that you need it to be. Don't say, oh, well, I love this tree, so I'm going to get it. It'll be a little too big. No, you need to go for proper size because in the end, the scale is going to matter, especially for maintenance. When you're designing your garden, put in your trees first, then put in your turf, put in your grass or terra turf. That's what you walk on. It's also your pathway. The shapes of that, they could be round. They could be naturalized. They could be oval. they could be square. It could be rectangular your trees are in four corners of it, but put in your trees first and then your meadow and turf. After that, put in your bushes, your big bushes first. If you need some bushes that get up 10 to 12 feet, then you put those in. If you need some bushes that are in front of that, that grow to four feet, put those in. Then you want to put in your focal points. Your focal points could be a bench, could be a bird bath, It could be a statue on a pedestal. A focal point could be a tree, like a contorted filbert. After your focal points, put in your ground covers. The goal is eventually no mulch. Yes, when you start putting in all your plants, yes, you need mulch to cover the soil, help prevent erosion, help prevent weeds. But eventually you want no mulch and ground covers. You want all ground covers, a spreading nice ground cover to hold the soil, keep the weeds out. After that, you want to put in any bulbs. There are all kinds of bulbs that many of us can use. I know where I live. There are different bulbs coming in and out of season throughout the whole year. After that, put in your perennials and your annuals. And I only put in perennials that are going to be tough and deer-proof, purple coneflower, iris, just very plain, simple things. If you put in your trees, the lawn, bushes, focal points, ground covers, bulbs, perennials and annuals, that equation equals a good garden. I would strongly recommend you go towards the evergreen plants. You can have some deciduous plants, those that lose their leaves. That's fine. You want to make sure that you have structure there during the wintertime. So there's something to look at. Also, when you're choosing plants, I cannot say enough how important it is to use natives and neonatives. Because there are some plants that are not native that will also be beneficial to our soil and our pollinator In our wildlife habitat, we are almost creating a desert by gardening in the old-fashioned way. I will raise my hand in guilt towards that. I really didn't know any better the first part of my career. That's part of what I don't want to do anymore. I really want to use almost all natives and the neo-natives that are collateral to our area. They've traveled and they fit in well. They don't become invasive and they do provide food to our soil and to our wildlife. Your extension service, your extension agent, there's a lot of free information in America for us that you're already paying for with your tax dollars. You're going to get better advice with the extension agent than you will at a garden center because at the garden center, they want to sell you what they have in stock, especially if it's not a family owned and that's what they do. Uh, A lot of garden centers now, we have the the big box garden centers, and they are what they are, and you know they're good for what they are, but you're not going to get a a high level of help there, if any help at all. It's kind of, what, grab and go. And I've I've gotten some good things that are big box in the middle of the country, and I'm happy to have them, but it's not a complete garden center. Um, Typically, a family-owned one will have a good spread of plants that you'll need for the natives and the collateral neonatives
0: when you worked at pikes how many ugly duckling plants did you take home and turn them into
1: beautiful plants oh my goodness you know the best story i have on that i guess it's a married story my husband i was gone for the week I think I visited my grandma or something. He went to Pike's and they had thrown out some plants, some three gallon plants had gotten real whatever. And they they were composting them. And there were two crepe myrtles, the nachos, the big white one that gets that beautiful cinnamon colored and vanilla bark. So I come home and there are these two, three gallon, sad Charlie Brown looking nachos crepe myrtles against the fence. Whatever. We did need some plants. The house was new. And they really got happy About five years later, I said, we need to move these things. They're going to be way too big where they are. So this weekend, we're going to move them. Put them in the backyard. I designed a circular terrace, a circular garden. I put in a pond. I eventually put a conservatory back there. You're not believing this pair of Natchez crepe myrtle. They had room to grow. Keep in mind, my garden is tiny. They got taller than my two-story house. They were blooming. They were magnificent. It was like snow-capped mountains. However, you were underneath the trees. You couldn't see them. I had to go several houses down the cul-de-sac to look at my blooming crepe myrtles. That's my favorite story of bringing home ugly ducklings. In the country right now, on my acreage, I'm only going to really garden the front. It's not even a full acre. Maybe it's three quarters of an acre. I'll have a garden around my house because again, I'm quite serious about wanting to be in my 80s here and being able to do most of it myself which is pretty arrogant and presumptuous of what I want and demand out of my my health and life. There were some leftover plantings from a job site that they were ugly ducklings. They were just some hollies that ended up not being used. And maybe the irrigation didn't get put on like they should have because they got blown over in a windstorm. And they became usable for me, meaning they were not quality enough for a client anymore. So ugly duckling. So I put a hedge of them in. That was the last thing I did gardening wise before the pandemic hit. I had bought some plants at a wholesale nursery and I put in the ugly duckling hedge. I mean, they're beautiful now. It's been a year about, um, not quite since the pandemic started. And of course, when the pandemic started, I couldn't be going back to the nurseries for more plantings that I was going to do. They're going to grow at the back of my property where the road, my house is at the road. It's very historic. You used to be like near a property line and on the road. That's how they, and you faced east. <laughs> That's what you did back in the day. And I need that hedge to get up about 10 feet. So when I'm on the deck that runs at the back of the house, that I won't see any cars at the road.
0: What is the most valuable garden mistake you've ever made?
1: I've made so many. Goodness, which one's the most valuable? Oh, okay. I'll tell you, the worst gardening mistake I ever made was listening to my arrogance. Listening to me up front, you know, when I'm in my early 20s starting all of this, I wanted all these flowers. I had to have flowers. I did not even consider native. I didn't consider what's there in winter. Oh my goodness. I'm glad I didn't have a big budget to do what I wanted in my 20s. Well, I've never, (laughs) never had a big budget. The biggest mistake I ever made was putting in a zillion perennials. And loving them, I don't have any regret for knowing about them personally and how to take care of them throughout the year and how they behave in different weather and all that kind of stuff and soils. I really wish I had been wiser and listened and paid more attention so that I could have started my garden with how I'm telling you all with the canopy and understory trees. And the backdrop hedges, you put in your tall ones if you need it, and then your shorter ones. And then you can put in some flowering shrubs. You can put in ground covers and focal points. Then you'll have a garden that's pretty all year. If a garden's pretty in February in Georgia, you know, the depths of winter, then it's pretty all year. If you go for a pretty garden in May, that doesn't mean you're going to have a garden pretty all year. It just doesn't. I gardened backwards. I was arrogant up front, thinking everything I wanted from my heart and my head was the way to go. I was humbled. Even going across Europe and learning so much, each layer I learned was a humbling because to learn something new, and it was better than what I knew from college or from personal desire, it's humbling to let go of what you were so sure of, great humility in it. The more humbled you are, the more humility about these lessons you've learned about creating a good garden across decades. I'm thick. It's embarrassing to say it's taken this long. The joy you get is that much bigger. It's also that much faster. You don't have to wait so many years to get something that's a picture or joyful. You're going to get it pretty quick.
0: Talking about your understory trees, what are some understory plants that you like to use? It's a shade garden.
1: I like the Coosa dogwoods. I think they'll do well for a lot of people in America, but the zone, they're a late blooming dogwood. They don't get the disease of the native dogwoods. I like their shape. I like their foliage. I really like them when the branches go down to the ground, but that's a really nice understory tree. I quit using red buds as an understory tree a long time ago because the wild ones do great. I would say the first four to five years of my career, I was putting into red buds, no problem. They're spring bloomer. They're just lovely and they're heart-shaped leaves. And, and then I like their yellow fall color. It got to the point, every client I was putting red buds in, and it didn't matter which wholesale nursery I bought them from, they died. They would just absolutely die. So I quit using them. And I have learned that the forest pansy red bud, that one will survive. I like as an understory tree. It's it's a little bit bigger and it it needs some sunshine is the quansan cherry. I I know it's a short lived tree. It's a 30 year tree, but they grow very fast and they're just stunning. They're just, oh, life with a quansan cherry is so much better. Oh, the Chinese snowball, the Viburnum macrocephalum, Chinese snowball. You've got to have that. It does well in a lot of zones across America. They look like hydrangea blossoms. They're big and they're white and they're numerous. And I can't tell you, I've had several delivery trucks. When I lived in Stone Mountain, I had two of those trees and they were mature. I would have delivery trucks stop and knock on my door to ask what those trees were everything i'm saying they take care of themselves a a good understory tree that's tough and kind of a street tree if you need it and has pretty winter bark i think you know what i'm gonna say is the chinese elm
0: what about as far as shrubs or ground covers in the shade
1: shrubs or ground covers in the shade you're getting hard on me i i like When you ask those kind of questions or anybody does, or a job site presents that to me, because when you have fewer choices, it's easier to design. Don't look at it as you're being restricted because you're not, I mean, you know, you are technically, but you're not being restricted from using the area to design and have a pretty garden room, no matter the shade. I like dwarf Mondo. I like Mondo. (laughs) This is so funny because this is from the arrogant girl who is so full of hubris. I can't believe I'm saying that now. I, I'm this old hag. <laughs> it is a wonderful plant if it's going to grow in this area that is very densely shaded. Maybe it gets really dry sometimes. Maybe it gets really moist sometimes. Let me tell you, when the plant can handle all of that, you're going to love the plant. Another plant that'll handle it is the Acorus gramineus. And there's the upright and there's also the, the dwarf ones, the, the double, like the Nana Nana, it's a very, very low Acorus gramineus. It'll take sun or shade, moist or dry. That's a good thing you could mix it up with. And another thing I had to be careful with on recommending plants. I can't believe I said what I just said, but I, I believe in it because the plants are going to survive, but they're also available. Let's give an example. You could choose a new variety of ajuga. And you, you know where I'm going with this one because you're a professional. There's some beautiful ajugas out there. They're, they're decadent. They're almost like a house plant. They're so beautiful. You can put it in a pot on your living room table. It's just gorgeous. When people have new cultivars of stuff, they've not been life tested for decades in the landscape. The good old-fashioned Mondo or Dwarf Mondo in the shade or even Vinca Minor, they're going to put up with deer. They're going to put up with drought years, hard freeze years. They're going to put up with everything. When I was a professional in my early 20s, I certainly wouldn't have been saying these plants. Um, but they're also going to be available for you. If I say a plant that you can't find or find easily, or let's say you're not installing it yourself, if your landscape crew has to go to Alabama and you're in Florida to get a specific plant, you are not affording that plant and you're not going to find a contractor that's going to do that for you easily.
0: Yep, availability, especially in this era of, it seems like there's so many branded plants. And I like the term that you said, life-tested, because I really use plants that have been that life-tested. I mean, and it may be what everybody else considers old and boring, but the way you use them and put them together is the creative side of it and how you develop a new garden. I like that term, life-tested.
1: I like to use the old fashioned, oh gosh, you probably know my, the whole world knows my favorite azalea to use for our zone. That's George Tabor and mostly deer proof. I don't care what the weather's doing. It's going to bloom for you. It's going to grow. Oh, and if your kids knock out four branches with a basketball next year, you don't even know what happened. I am all for the old fashioned plants. Even in my twenties, when I had all that hubris about knowing something, I, I did have a saving grace is I knew to pay attention to the older gardeners that you would meet at plant society meetings like the Georgia Perennial Plant Association. There were all these good societies back in the 80s. I would just cleave, stick myself to these older gardeners. I did what they did. I don't care what the book said. You know, even if it's Michael Durr in the Bible that he wrote about woody shrubs and trees and all that, that's fine. And I know him and he'd laugh at me saying this. I'm going to pay attention to somebody that's in their 70s or 80s that's been doing this since childhood. And they want you to have this certain kind of oak or that certain kind of viburnum. That's what I'm going to have. That has not led me wrong, is paying attention to what the old gardeners have.
0: Tremendous wisdom with the old gardeners. Mm
1: -hmm. I really think when people want to design their landscape, they don't know where to start. And starting inside your house is, I mean, that just blew me over when I was in Europe. And it's like the Middle East and Italy, we go way back before Jesus was on the earth. And they were professionally gardening by the expert being inside their villa or their home looking out. Because once you have a starting point, and then I'm telling you what trees to start with, and then the the bushes, and then X, Y, Z, you're not stuck anymore. You're just not stuck. You're doing it.
0: You were telling the story earlier about times that the tractor trailers would deliver all these plants to you there at Pike. And then we've talked about starting inside uh, your garden. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite houseplant?
1: I've come to houseplants only recently. I'm amazed you asked that, even though I was in charge of this huge division and 18 wheelers brought everything. I never, oh, I know why. That's funny. How can I forget? I, I've got too many cats. I didn't have houseplants for the longest time, but moving to the country, we had to put in a well. We had to clear invasives. and you know. So years passed before I could garden finally. Started bringing some plants in at wintertime. I've been putzing over them and I am so in love with bringing things from outside inside. And that includes not just potted plants. I started bringing in cut stems off the side of the road, cut stems off bushes that need pruning in the garden and arranging them. I don't even necessarily need flowers. Most often I don't want them. I want something in the back of the house, something in the kitchen, something at the front of the house, something in the foyer, even on my front porch. Oh, there was some big date within the pandemic. There was some sort of like we were being locked down or something like that. And that was like my last day out that things were open. And I bought this table at a thrift store. It came from the old Bombay company that they shut down quite a few years ago. But it's mahogany with some glass inserts. And I spray painted it. You know, I've got a color trinity myself. I, I practice everything I'm preaching. I've got green, brown and white. And my green is a faded green. So it looks like it's always been here without the time of it aging got this floral arranging table on the front porch because it can be messy and inconvenient to to do that inside the house. So I just do that on the front porch and knock everything off into the, the bed just behind it. I still can't find the words to describe having a living plant, a living potted plant in the house or bringing in a vase. Even if it's a small vase in the bedroom beside your bed, it's almost as if you're doing Something spiritual for yourself because it's out of proportion what that vase of foliage, especially does for you in a room. It could be in your office or whatnot. Where I had no relationship at all with houseplants, I think I'm having an affair now. I'm so in love with them. I'm having this relationship. And my mother got sick and was dying during most of 2018, and I was in Texas a great deal i never forget a Lagustrum arrangement I did in the house. And I was gone three weeks that time. And it was a nice big vase. I, I like big showy things. And when I said I had hubris up front, I haven't gotten rid of all of it. It's still there. So I've got this <laughs> big showy Lagustrum vase arrangement. I tell you, um, I got a lot done. I had a good visit with my mother. I didn't know she was going to die that year. In hindsight, I should have known that she was already dying. But I came home. That arrangement was still beautiful. Three weeks later, it was doing something for me, nurturing me. I had put it together, but somehow it had taken over and did something for me. I got teary eyed when I came home and I saw that because, you know, when you come home after three weeks, all you see is all kinds of work to do. (laughs) But there is this spot of beauty. So I've been posting some of that on my blog about different pictures and interior scaping with plants or vases and greenery inside the house. Good for you for asking that question.
0: I was reading your blog and that's inspired me to get a vase and go take some foliage or even something like forsythia or the other blooming things in combination with evergreens. Mm -hmm. It was inspiring what I saw on your blog. That's uh, I I can tell doing, doing these interviews are going to be very dangerous because it's going to put a -hmm. a lot of desire on me that I don't think I can probably accomplish the rest of my life. You know, I've talked to so many interesting people and it's like, it is so inspiring. And it's like, I need to change (laughs) the way I do that. Oh, that would be so cool. I want to do that in my house. This is dangerous. This is dangerous. (laughs) Talking to people.
1: It is dangerous. And I, Craig, I wanted to do this for over 30 years. I I was too special. I didn't have time to clip anything and bring it in the house. Or I didn't, you know, my garden was so small, you know, the 30-year garden, cottage garden, even it was pretty and stuffed with flowers. I always thought, well, if I cut for bases in the house, you know, not only will the cats knock it over, but then I don't have the flowers in the garden anymore. Not having a garden here hurt. This is what I learned about the garden I left, Craig. Nobody's ever going to talk me out of this. That garden that I loved, and I left, that garden, I'm looking out the windows of my home I live in now that I love living here. I'm, I'm happy I moved. I'm proud of this property. But I'm looking out the window of a garden yet to be, and it'll be very simple. And I thought to myself, oh my How did I never know that my cottage garden loved me? That garden loved me. I didn't only love it. It loved me back. And that's why it has not hurt leaving it is because it loves me still. Doesn't matter if that garden's gone. I have no idea. It could be a lawn now. I have no idea. Doesn't matter. It's still there in my heart. It's still there for me and it still loves me. And nobody will take that away from me ever, is that garden. And that's when I started also realizing I'm going to start bringing in these clippings. I've always wanted to do it. I mentioned before, you know, my grandmother was a competitive floral designer in competitions. And I always thought that was so ridiculous. And now I'm one of those, I know I don't enter competitions or anything like that, nor do I want to, but I do it for myself. To bring it in and maybe I've got a couple of friends or clients that are coming by for lunch. I will make an effort for a good chicken salad, fruit salad and some ginger cookies, but also to bring in some flowers. I shouldn't say flowers. I should say greenery. It, it's become... Something that I won't not do. And it had been decades of something I never found the time for, just like you told me. But it, it, now it's become something that's more important. <laughs> I know it's pretty scary. <laughs> Who's that person talking? But, you, you know, you got to pick your priorities. And that's one of mine, because I, I really feel a spiritual connection. There, there's something woo woo. There, there's something going on more than just a plant in the house. So, I mean, you opened up a whole thing when you asked about house plants in the house. <laughs> Okay, a good example of how important they are when people sell a house or when and take pictures, or when people have a house in a magazine, they typically hire somebody to come in and cite the house plants and cut flowers. They're an entire layer of a professional that's done that without them, the pictures that you'll see online or in the magazine or a house for sale are reduced in effect.
0: Explain that. I'm not following you.
1: Oh, oh, that'll be a good blog post then. There's this interior decorator. It doesn't matter who it is, just somebody that's good. And you like the paint colors. You like the furnishings. You you like how everything flows in there. You, You just absolutely like everything. Look at it again. Where is there a vase of cut flowers? Where is there a terracotta garden pot with a large geranium in it? Where is the little bud vase by the bed? a lot of times you don't even notice it's there because you're looking at the whole thing. And maybe you have fixated on the mirror. Maybe you have fixated on the textures or fixated on the garden out the window, but I somehow woke up. And it's been since I've lived here without a garden because it's like I I was missing my love. I had to have something to love and love me back. And (laughs) so I was cutting stems off the side of the road In my house. It's a great
0: place to find. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Love me. Love me.
1: To love me. (laughs) And I mean, I I get to be that crazy lady, Craig. I I mean it. I'm the crazy lady that gets to say these things, (laughs) but I mean it from the heart. Just try it and you'll see.
0: I am. I'm going to have a lot of fun because I just brought these brand new Felco printers. I've never owned a pair of Felco printers. I don't know. It was like Christmas when they came. So, Mm -hmm. this will be a great Mm -hmm. way to try them out is to get my foliage for interior with them.
1: Yep. Good for you. Yeah. Be careful. I'll say this when I finally got my first Velco. Right. Be careful on your opposite hand that's not doing the cutting. Be careful you don't cut a finger off. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They're good. They're good clippers. That's all I'll use. Yeah.
0: Probably (laughs) need some steel gloves on my left hand then. (laughs) No, I'll be careful. I'll be careful.
1: Yep. Yep. I would highlight, especially the first six months you're using them. <laughs> now, I know Sally bought at the last flower show, your wife, Sally, she bought two small bud vases from me at my mm-hmm. garden display. And she mm-hmm. said she wanted to put them on the kitchen windowsill. And we've had over a year. Has she done it? Yes. Oh, good. She's
0: actually rooted a camellia in there.
1: Oh, yay! I've never even done
0: that. And it's got all these little roots in there. Yeah, she well, she was cutting stems, and not to the extent you were just talking about, but she cut that stem and put it there. She's so proud of that. She was wanting to know if I would seen it and what i thought and i thought it was great it's fantastic i, I love those little bases there with a the-
1: yeah yeah that's a great story i mean wow that's a i'm so glad i asked that's a great story because you got to watch it happen you know you got to watch the the roots come out and mm-hmm. everything
0: tell everybody about your services and where they can find you
1: i started a blog quite a few years ago so i could show clients pictures and then i started getting clients in other countries because and doing it online. And I'd been doing long distance designs when I, I had clients here that their their children who had been three years old somehow got out of college about their first home and they're 28, but they live in Colorado or wherever. So I started doing long distance design that way before there was an internet, I would just get a copy of their plaid and some four by six Pictures away. I went, and then I did the blog again. I'm thinking I'm just going to show some pictures, but now I I get clients from all over the globe, and they find me through the blog, and we can FaceTime and talk for free. It's fun. Garden design rules don't change due to the era or the country um, or the weather or, or whatever zone you're in, and so that's fun for me as putting together a, a garden with things that I normally can't use near me that's a lot of fun but in reverse i had one client up um in detroit and i got to use a lot of conifers and ground covers and a lot of real pretty things but craig i'll tell you (laughs) i was sitting there at my drawing table i had flown up there to do that design i was sitting there at my drawing table thinking to myself this is terrible i was talking to god apparently i said oh god if you would just please let me use a few camellias here (laughs) (laughs) Because they would have been so stunning with how well the conifers do up there, which they don't do that well for us. But as you know, you're not going to grow camellias up there in Detroit. So it it worked backwards too, but I've really enjoyed the long distance aspect of it. And then just people, it's like a template of a gardener's heart. I think from where we want to garden from and our souls just crosses all Mm -hmm. kinds of boundaries. It's just been a joy, Craig. The people, I I guess, because they really expose themselves, or they're childlike again. Because it's like, oh, I can have those. Or you know, one lady recently, she she had a lot of hanging baskets on those metal shepherd's hooks. She had a whole bunch of them. So I figured that was her overdose on a theme. I'm going to do some more, but I'm going to do it like Six Flags would have done it in the 1980s when they really went over the top with stuff. And here's this woman who's a grandmother. She's retired. And she looked at me, I promise you, with eyes that were her three-year-old eyes. Like somebody just brought her the best Christmas present she ever had. And That's because I know how to do garden design, and I know on certain things you need to overdose on a theme. And for her, it was those shepherd's hooks that she puts hanging baskets on every summer. And what a blast that was.
0: So take a theme and blow it up,
1: huh? Yeah, you want to overdose on a theme. And as a very wise person once told me, and you're going to interview this person at Suzanne Hudson, she said very wisely, Dinky is Stinky. <laughs> I don't care who you are. You know what no, I mean I, when I say I like that. It.
0: Yeah. 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 <laughs> so if people wanted to contact you going through your website or your blog.
1: Yeah. I'm Taradillard.com. T A R A D I L L A R D.com. dillard.com
0: This has been episode 108, A Garden View with Tara Dillard on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Tara. You're awesome. This is a remix and encore presentation of episode four. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time.